0: In. Go ahead and have a seat. Caleb, thank you, man. Thank you for your obedience, for your um, desire to follow God. I love, even as you're singing these, these words, the blood of Jesus, and as we're considering just where we're at in that cycle of God's mercy and love, because it's His kindness that leads us to repentance, so we can get up in this beautiful um, grace cycle um, I hope that you're already being ministered to by God this morning. I want to go ahead and take a quick minute to dismiss the children. Kindergarten and first grade, second through fifth, will stay this morning. Second through fifth will stay this morning. Kindergarten through first grade, you all are dismissed to your classes. Well, good morning everyone. Uh, My name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at Common Ground Northeast. It's good to see you. Welcome to uh, what we affectionately refer to as Spring Break Overlap Sunday, all right? Half of the school groups are out last week and the rest are out this next week, so you are the remaining, the remnant few who decided to stay here and take the risk that the weather might be nice. It worked out in our favor, at least for today, so I'm glad that you all are here. A couple of mentions before we jump in. I wanted to say thanks. I actually forgot and then walked away after the service and remembered that that I had not said this. But for those who came and helped out on our work day, it was last Saturday. I just want to say thank you. Um, it's a huge, huge help to us. We're trying to get things, you know, it's just a general spring cleaning, but get things ready in order before Easter. We got a few things that we've had here that had not been installed, put up. We got like a, there's a map out there. Um, we had some mulch that was laid actually this week. So I want to say a special thanks because it was so cold. We didn't do it last Sunday or last Saturday. But then during the week, two people came and just decided to get rid of that mulch pile and put it out for us. So for all of you who helped either on that day or throughout the week, for those of you who came in throughout the week to help out, we we're installing some lights and different things too. So, um, man, so, so helpful and uh, appreciate that. Um, the other thing I want to do is to do a quick update. Uh, uh, my, this is my latest update. We started raising funds so that we could give to a ministry that is operating in the Ukraine. Um, our goal that we put in front of you was $3,000, and right now we have about $1,100. We raised about just a little over $1,000. So for those of you who gave already, thank you so much for helping and, and throwing in your support there. We want to see the rest of that goal met by the end of, of this month, though. So if you have it in your means and your capability, um, we, are, we are specifically um, going to be giving to a ministry that has been working with what, what they have said is severely disabled um, uh, uh, individuals. Um, I, I want to say it's men and boys, but I'm not 100% sure on that um, based off of the, the thing last week. And so as you can imagine, doing transportation and different things that are going on are difficult. And so I just thought, as, as a church that wants to stand in the gap for people who maybe don't have a voice often in their circumstances, this was um, something that really fit our value system. So if you have it in your means and the conviction is there that God would say, hey, it's, we got to give to this, um, feel free to do that. You can still give through text. Um, right now, uh, the little seat back in front of you have a card on it. It's a blue card that gives the text. But we did finally this last week. I know that it's up. Well, let me say I didn't 100% confirm it, but I got the message from the person who's in charge of it. That There is a Ukraine drop-down on our online giving. So if you go to our giving tab, it's the if you hit the menu at the top right-hand side of our website, it'll have a, a giving menu, and you should be able to give specifically to Ukraine, designate or help, help us as we try to identify that that's what it's for. Um, so thank you for being a part of that. Um, and then uh, uh, the last thing I want to mention, just as we're getting closer and closer to um, Easter. Well, let me let me say this. This is maybe this wasn't in the plan, but let me mention this. Um, after Easter, we have felt like God has put on our heart to um, speak and to teach on the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, so after Easter, what we're going to do is jump into that. But what we're seeing here, and as you saw even today, um, as Caleb just is trying to, every Sunday we pray before you all get here around nine thirty, and we ask some similar prayers just that God would pour His Spirit out. And so a few weeks ago, someone in our church who's Um, helps to lead here, came forward and said that they had a word that they felt God wanted us to um, hear. And so we wanted to declare it. And so we had a quick little discernment, like on the spot between he and I. I stopped and like, Holy Spirit, yes or no? And I felt like the Holy Spirit said, "Um, you've been asking for this. What do you mean? And so it was an instant yes, and he affirmed something that Ken had preached. And so I guess what we're saying is maybe we're not necessarily individuals, most of us, as common ground. Maybe you come from it individually, but as a whole, we're not necessarily a charismatic church. But we just see maybe the fruits of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit are starting to bubble up in our midst. And part of that is because we prayed for that, and so we just want to start um, moving forward on that and asking God to continue doing whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do, but also to look to God's Word after that and just ask Him where He wants to inform us as we venture into that territory. So if you've been wondering, like, what happened when that person came up and spoke? What about this? And we're kind of making some changes and ad living and doing some things. It's just what the Holy Spirit's doing, and so I invite you to come along for the ride because it's definitely more exciting than the other way uh, before that. If you've ever been, uh, you know, in a church that just says that that doesn't exist, this so um Uh, So be praying for us as we think about that. We're getting closer and closer to Easter. The speed of Jesus' life and the narrative that even we're going to talk about today begins to intensify. There is more um, uh, at-risk taking place in this. And so as we start, this is the day before Palm Sunday, we'll we'll jump into Palm Sunday and then celebrate Easter together. Um, There's two services, 8.30 and 10.30, by the way, uh, if you'd like to come. And we're trying to, I think we have, uh, we're going to be able to celebrate baptisms in both of those. So um, try to, uh, try to, to come out. To to that um, and and celebrate the resurrection. There's nothing more powerful than a baptism on Easter because it is the, the living representation, the illustration. Of death, burial, and resurrection. So we want to invite you to that and invite anyone else who you'd like to come with. Um, but as we get closer and closer to this moment where the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus takes place, there's a speed of the narrative that begins to take place as we read. And so today what we're going to talk about very specifically is a moment right before Jesus gets crucified. It's a moment of public upheaval. Now, I'm not going to talk about anything that happened in the Oscars this morning, All right. I, I trust maybe we're done having that conversation. To some extent, uh, it's been, having been been happening on social media, uh, on, on Overdrive. But, but uh, it, it's, I, I find it as an odd or funny coincidence that we're talking about public uh, upheaval this week. Have you ever been so mad that you wanted to scream in public? Have you ever been so mad that you wanted to disrupt whatever was going on, but because you were in public, you're like, I can't do it. I got to keep this in, i got to hold this in, make sure that I stay under control. I don't know if you knew, I found out about this last night, there there was an advertisement for a rage room. Does anyone here know what a rage room is? Have you heard of this before? Uh, Someone's like, I'm not going to admit it because maybe I've gone to it. It's a room specifically designated and and, and kind of uh, has different items in it that you would find in a normal room so that you can just go crazy, rage, and destroy everything in the room. So you can rent a room that allows you to take a bar, like a solid metal bar, and just destroy TVs and furniture and vases and all kinds of things. You can even BYOB, bring your own breakable. Because I got something really significant about this item in my house that sets me off because this printer doesn't work, all right? And I'm going to make sure this printer feels it. So I got to bring my printer, and I'll pay you extra so I can bring this printer and destroy it in this safe room. This is a real thing helps to keep it down. If you haven't seen, like even in the news, what you're seeing is an uptick in people with public disturbances on the airplanes. It's like kind of becoming more and more normal that people lose themselves on a flight. Now, I've been in some pretty crazy flights, and I might have been close to losing myself here and there in a situation like that because it can be really difficult. In fact, I actually saw a a, a public upheaval um, at uh, at a restaurant. It was about a year ago, actually. Is down on New York Street, um, one of my favorite re- Mexican restaurants, um, and uh, I was there with one other person, and I don't know what all happened beforehand, but it was like a couple of people were heckling somebody sitting on the porch. We were on the porch. There was another family, two families actually, sitting there with us, um, and I saw the heckling turn into arguing, and and legitimately, no no joke. Before I realized it, this dude picks up his metal folding chair full WWF style, and goes after this person. I don't even know if WWF is a thing anymore. Winds up with a swing and a miss, right? You don't want to miss a situation like that because then you're just exposed. The chair gets dropped on the floor, and they kind of turn into this weird stalemate where one guy's grabbing the other guy by his hair, and this guy's saying, homie, let me go. Let my hair go. I'm like, I have no clue what was going on there. I realized, though, in the midst of it, there's families running for their cars. This dad makes eye contact, right? He's like, I mean, this is crazy. I should have gone to Chipotle. And I'm like, nah, man, you haven't tasted the elote here, right? That chili corn that you can only get here, because it might be worth taking an elbow accidentally for that corn. So I'm not going anywhere. We're staying right here. But you kind of like, as you're watching it happen, you're like, do I get involved? Do I try to de-escalate the situation? Do I try to break this up? You know, like you kind of have these things. Eventually, the police showed up and everything calmed down. Um, but it was a giant disruption, so there was no one left on the porch. Everyone left. They all got in their cars and, and headed out. I did ask the person who was with me. I was dropping them off at the airport. I said, are you okay? I'm, like, I'm as long as you're here, I'm good. Like, I, I still want this corn, so let's stick it out. Eventually, we were served and everything worked out. Now, now I don't know uh, how many of you have seen a public disturbance like that, maybe a minor one, maybe, maybe you've seen an even bigger one. It's not normal in our day, though, right? It kind of goes against codes of conduct, civil norms, right? If you haven't seen anything like this, though, you almost have to conjure it up in your imagination of what it would be like if you were in that situation. It can be really awkward, and what I want you to see is that today, in the story that we're about to read, it's Jesus himself that causes this public disturbance, it's a it's a it's a giant upheaval in a very public place during a large celebration that's taking place in the temple. I want to jump into it real quick, so go ahead and open up your Bibles right now. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. I'm going to read a little bit, then we'll teach a little bit, come back to it, and then we'll close it up together on the other side. Mark chapter 11, again, I saw a couple of the Bibles got taken. If you need a Bible, we have some for you to take with you. They're back where the communion stations are, just kind of on the little um, shelf underneath it. Let me read this to you. Mark 11, 11, starting in verse 11, you can follow along with me. You'll notice that we're starting a little bit before kind of the section break as some of the Bibles determine it. Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in, dis- in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from your fruit again. From, sorry, from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now you might be thinking, hold on, like... I thought we were talking about an upheaval. This is a fig tree story. I don't, I don't know where you're going with this, right? Well, what I want you to see is um, this is a story that takes place within another story. And so we have to back out just a little bit and see what happens on the road towards the temple. Mark, in particular, has written his entire gospel, let me not say the entire thing, but many of his, the parts of his gospel in what, what people will call like a sandwich form, or I'll use a hamburger kind of as an analogy. And so there's a bun that's laid down, and then there's a patty of meat, a slice of cheese, and then another bun on the other side that closes it up. And so what you're going to have is he's going to open up with one story, stop, go to a different story, then come back and lay that second bun on top because in the context of the outer story, he is making commentary on the one on the inside. So you have to read these two things together. These two stories interact. And it's important, especially in this, because he makes his final point with that last bun that he drops on there, all right? So the two stories can't be separated without losing the intent of the author, mark as we read. So let me reread verse 16. He sees in the distance a tree, a fig tree and a leaf uh, sorry, in leaf, meaning that it's starting to sprout, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. When he said to the tree, "May no one ever eat from your fruit from you again." Sorry, Eat fruit from you again." And his disciples heard him say it Now. I think if you are like me, you might read that and just, like your first inclination is it's, it's a little strange, right? He's talking to a fig tree, and you might even be kind of thinking like, dang, it's harsh. Like, what did this fig tree ever do to you, man? It's not, it seems like a little out of the ordinary for him to start calling out fig trees on the road, and he's mad at this thing, right? Well, as you might guess, it's not about the fig tree, right? That's not what this story is about. Like many of the parables of Jesus, he takes something real, something tangible, something often that is just in his line of sight, and he turns it into a lesson, into a teaching moment. This is a perfect teaching moment. One commentator said Yeshua is making a point by means of prophetic drama, an acted-out parable. So he begins to act out this parable. The tree is an illustration, right? It's about something else. And before we open up what that is and apply it, I want to break down a process that's taking place even as the fig tree is being seen. And it's these four, kind of this process in four motions. There is a hunger, there is an examination, there is fruitlessness, and then there is judgment. Do you see all four of those things? Hunger, examination, fruitlessness, and judgment. I'm going to reapply this again, so keep it in your mind. First, the hunger. Jesus is hungry. He wants the fig tree's fruit. The second thing is that he goes in, approaches the tree. He sees that it's got leaves, so it maybe should have some buds on it. He realizes that this tree has no fruit at all. So he examines it. Then the third thing, fruitlessness. When he sees it, there's not what he wanted. He is not going to be able to eat fruit from this tree. The fourth thing then is judgment. He curses the tree. He condemns it. Specifically, though, to live out the same useless existence that it just displayed for Jesus. Did you see that? All right, so keep these four things in mind. We're going to keep reading, and I'll come back to these four things. Verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers the benches and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. All right, so pause quickly. Picture this scene because it's crazy. You can read past it without thinking very much of what's happening. And maybe you've even heard this story enough that you're like, oh, yeah, this is the part when Jesus flips over tables. Like, I get it, this happens in here. But just stop for a little bit. There are tables set up all over this court. They're they're there to enable travelers to be able to put things on different tabletops so that they can display them. The Passover is about to happen, so people are in from out of town and it's crowded. They're there to change the various currencies and coins and stuff that they have in exchange for the ones that are supposed to be used inside of the temple. There is a temple tax that's being asked of them. They're also trying to purchase things like lambs and pigeons and oil and salt for all kinds of different various sacrifices that are being required. The dominant idea though, and maybe you've heard this before, is that the merchants are skimming off the top. They're changing the weights just a little bit. They're making sure that the exchange of currency favors them so that they get a little bit more off of every single interaction than maybe they would normally do. And so Jesus, upon entering this table, walks in, and I'm going to use this language specifically, begins to purify the temple in a calculated moment of zeal. He's flipping over tables, knocking things to the floor, right? Consider it. Have you ever actually seen somebody flip over a table? Have you seen it, right? Like, just kidding. I was going to do it show you all. Have you seen it, though? Like, I I realized as I was reading this, I don't think I've actually seen it happen. Oh, you haven't. Good point. I could have done it today, and then you would have said, yes, I can. Imagine if you are in a public place, like a restaurant, and somebody ramps up. Either you see it escalate or just out of nowhere it's quiet. And then as someone just takes a table from up under. Everything that's on it gets flipped over and dropped onto the ground because they either had the anger or the audacity not to care about what was going on around them, right? A literal table being dropped over. Just imagine it and how you would respond if you were in the room when it happened. Now, I imagine it would be incredibly intrusive. The environment changes, right? The whole tone of the room is not the same as it was a few moments ago. Those around are not just, you're not going to go back to life as normal. You don't just, well, where was I in our conversation while they're cleaning it up across the room. You stop what you're doing. You stop eating. You stop your conversation, and you pay attention to the person flipping tables, right? So all eyes are on Jesus. Remember, it's not just a table, too. It's multiple tables. John's account tells us that he made a whip, a calculated endeavor. He had to go find the things necessary to weave a whip together, comes back with that thing and starts swinging it around, right? Jesus brought a whip, not the dance, a whip, like a real whip. And he is in the middle of this place driving out the sellers driving out the buyers, driving out animals. So dust is kicking up. Goats are running every which way. Doves are being let out of their cages. So you imagine they're flying around and feathers are all over the place. This is a chaotic scene that often we read without thinking too much, where he flipped over the table. Coins are spilling on the ground. People who own those coins are thinking, I don't want anyone else to pick it up, but like, do I I go in? Jesus, is he going to What's he gonna do? Like, I don't want someone else to grab my coins, those are my coins. So you got this anxiety taking place and even the stools, right? Like I love that he's like, what else is there? Oh, you know, like his stool. Like I'm gonna, I'm kicking over everything. I don't want you all to be able to sit down and even watch this. In fact, I want you all to stand up and pay attention because I've got something I've got to say. So check this out. Jesus breaks all the civic norms. Jesus is not what you would call reasonable, right? Jesus is not what you would call responsible. Not us, right? Jesus is not what you would call civil. (laughs) Jesus is not respecting people's property. In fact, he is destructive and using them to make a point. Because his point is worthwhile enough to do so. Some have even described this moment as a small coup or an insurgency because Jesus would not allow anyone to carry, this is the, what the verse says, would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple or the courts. So the facility is actually like on this Jesus lockdown All of the intended productivity that was supposed to take place in this moment comes to a full stop for a period of time. I was reading in the Jewish New Testament commentary, which is one that I will quote from often here, and they bring N.T. Wright into this conversation saying this, Jesus clearly occupied the entire temple area for a few hours. Now, I never thought of it like that, hours. Hours. It seems that the public was using the temple area as a public thoroughfare. Jesus, with his supporters, blocked that unauthorized bypass. So imagine the organization. Paul, I want you at this door. John, right here. You're not a very scrappy one, so I'm going to give you the easy door. Put Peter on the, on the tough door where people might actually try to push through, right? Right? He's organized in his attempt, I never thought of that before, overturning these tables. Sorry, Jesus, so a temple area. He organizes his supporters, blocking the unauthorized bypass, overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of the merchants, selling doves, driving out both sellers and buyers. This necessitated controlling the entire, listen to this, 35-acre complex. That's a large situation. It takes a bit of organization to lock down something that big. In the process, for that day, he shuts down the afternoon sacrifice. At the end of the day, Jesus and his followers voluntarily withdrew. They had made their public statement. I love that last line. In essence, Jesus' crew seized the temple. Verse 17, it says, And as he taught them, that's right, Class is in session. There's nowhere for you to sit, stand up, and listen. I've got something that I've got to say. He said this, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. In the middle of this milieu, violent actions, chaos, all of these things taking place, Jesus decides he's got a little lesson to teach so he's quoting from the Old Testament and various things. I want you to take a closer look just at these two phrases. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. First, A house of prayer for all nations. Not so coincidentally, the area where Jesus, uh, that this event takes place is called the court of Gentiles. Where the Gentile converts into Judaism would have dwelled as their part in worship and celebrating of the Passover. You can see it here. I think we have a quick little map that I dropped in there. So I want you, it's hard to see, but you see how large this area is. The E, you can't see the little key right there, but the E is the court of Gentiles. Do you see how large that is? Jesus is in that front, that bottom, large, open area. That's where he's at. This is the area he's occupied. This is where he has shut things down. Now, Mark's gospel is the only one that adds this phrase, for all nations. The reason is because Mark is specifically writing to a Gentile audience. So Matthew Luke, John, they're trying to get other Jewish people on board and they cite and look back at the Old Testament want to make sure that your history is involved. This is what it means. Since you knew this, this is the fulfillment of it and they want it to be connected to what the Jewish people already knew. But in this case, he wants the Gentiles to know the way in which they are included with what's going on. And so it's this non-Gentile, or sorry, non-Jewish Gentile audience, he points out here specifically that they understand, they recognize that Jesus sees there was an ethnic prejudice taking place. That outside nations in particular were being denied access to, to the, through the system of God's people and that the Gentiles are being unfairly targeted. By including this little phrase, this is another quote, um, I can't remember which commentary, uh, the Global Study Bible. By including this little phrase, Jesus both restores the temple to the proper function as a house of prayer for all nations and points towards, I love this, the missional inclusion of the Gentiles as a part of the establishment of the kingdom of God. Now we we should know that, right? I, I have blessed you to be a blessing to all nations. We should know this if you're God's people at this point. And so he's going to make sure that the fulfillment of Isaiah 56.7 happens. All nations should be represented in this place. Paul Miller writes, All of this commerce took place in the outer court of the temple, which was reserved for prayer by other ethnic groups. Only Jews went to the inner courts. The ancient prophecy said that one day the Jews would bring salvation to all people. Israel would be the door through which people from all nations would and should come to know God. So he says this. Here's your lesson. I told you this is supposed to be a place for all nations. And then he says, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus sees the business activity. He compares it to the hiding place where robbers take all of the things that they have stolen to store them. Like, you get the robber thing, but think about specifically the den of robbers. You've gone out for the day. You've maybe been pickpocketing. Maybe you pulled a good heist. I don't, I don't know what robbers in the first century are doing. Then you take all of that and you hide it somewhere where you either divide it up or do whatever it's going to be that you're going to do with it. And he's saying the temple of God is now that place you have been robbing collectively so much this is just a storehouse for robbers the statement would have been something that enraged the jewish people the priests specifically are taking on an accusation so it's possible that this act is more than this act more than any other would have been the basis for the crucifixion of jesus later on it's not that unfamiliar right attacks on power structures especially when it's oppressive will bring death dealing retaliation at times We've seen it before. We see it here. I was going to make this quick little note. I wasn't sure to cut it. I'm going to do it really quick. The Midrash, which is a Jewish commentary, called the people, the priests during this time, the sons of Eli, which is a really negative reference to a bunch of priests in the Old Testament who were stealing and then taking the gold to make Things inside of the temple so that when they walk through the temple, you could legitimately say that goblet, that's a stolen goblet because you, you, you built it out of gold that you stole. This thing that you embedded into my temple, that's, that's blood gold. Because over here you killed and stole and did something with it. And so the Midrash looks back at this time. Jews later will look back at this and say, these people, these priests were specifically acting like the sons of Eli by lacing the temple with stolen goods. One commentary described the leaders and the merchants' actions as an organized crime, calling them a corrupt mafia. And Jesus was resisting this corrupt mafia. There's one last thing I wanted to make a connection here. This public disturbance had an economic cost to it as well, right? Think about all the money that's being lost in this. If goats are running out of the the temple gates, if birds are flying away that you thought you were going to make a lot of money on. And so what I want you to see is just a few weeks ago we talked about a loss of economic funds because of a Gentile system of oppression. A legion of pigs died. And had an economic impact on the Gentile economy in the Decapolis. But instead of unclean pigs, this is a specific type of animal. These sacrificial, perfect sacrificial animals, unblemished, have been raised from birth, protected from birth, so that they would be the most valuable, so that they could be sold during this time. And so, what once was an economy impacted by unclean animals, we now see God's people's economy impacted at the loss of their sacrificial perfect animals. The expense of, these, of losing these animals would have been massive. And so, we have this perfect equal but opposite critique That before Jesus was looking at this Gentile communion and saying, the way you've set it up is oppressing people, it's hurting people, it's taking advantage of the vulnerable, and then he turns it back on his own people. Say, look, You, you all should know better. You're my people. And you're no different than what the Gentiles have been doing. And so God's people, too, built a system that benefited some, marginalized others, kept some out, let some in, and they're doing it right in God's face in the temple. The proximity of these two encounters helps us to see the focal point of Jesus' critique. A few weeks ago was the Gentiles of the shore of Decapolis, but today is a resistance and an internal critique where he's saying we've got to clean out our own house before we start cleaning out the houses of others. What a powerful statement for the church today. The Jewish institutions, Jewish systems, are all under inspection now. The temple, which should be the very representation of holiness, has been compromised. It is now made unclean, and they have used the festival to take advantage of the vulnerable. Let's move on in verse 18, and we'll kind of finish some things up. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, The teaching, remember, and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. He's got a following now. And when the evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Now, this moment also functions kind of as a trigger moment. At this point, Jesus has accepted his own divinity and statements along those lines. People have been reporting on the healings that he's done, the miracles that he's done, but now he has gone in an all-out aggressive act of resistance against the Jewish people, right? And who would have the ability to do something like that other than somebody with a lot of authority? And now there's people following, hanging on his very words. And so this almost certainly sets into motion, that which leads to Jesus' death in a couple weeks. The Jewish leaders either have to come into alignment or get rid of Jesus. And they decide to go in the second direction. Now I want to show you um, this uh, the process that we talked about with the fig tree, um, just to show you some of these parallels. Can you put those back up? Hunger, examination, fruitlessness, and judgment. So before it was the fig, now I want you to see what's going on here. There is a hunger. God is hungry for Israel to bear spiritual fruit. He wants them to be righteous, and he wants them to be ready for the coming Messiah. They are meant to be ready, and they are preparing the way for others to enter into the fold of God. This is the hunger of God for the temple. Jesus goes, remember I read that one little verse right before? Jesus actually went the night before to check things out. He comes in, he's like, ah, it's a little too late, let's come back and take care of this tomorrow. Then he passes the fig tree, makes use of it as an example, as a teaching uh, object lesson, and so what he's done is he has gone in for examination and he saw that things weren't right. So the second movement, examination, Jesus comes in close, examines the temple, sees to look for the fruitfulness, in fact, he even goes that day before, entering in, then he picks up where he starts this next day, Third, he finds what in the temple? Well, upon example, uh, examination, he finds fruitlessness. He finds no fruit in the temple, no righteousness, no readiness, no preparation for the inclusion of all nations. In fact, not only are they not doing what they're supposed to do, but they're actively doing what they are not supposed to do. And so we can actually read a verse in Isaiah that I don't have time to read where it talks about a vineyard that is producing bad fruit. You're not just not producing fruit, you have produced rotten fruit. And this is a prophecy for this moment. They're robbing people, treating what is sacred with no regard, making it difficult for the Gentiles. And then finally, for a judgment takes place. There's a condemnation to Israel because they are not doing what they are created to do which was to bear spiritual fruit. Now we're going to close up with these last couple of verses, bring this whole thing full circle, and then we'll apply it to ourselves. Verse 20, In the morning, as they went along, they saw what? What'd they see? The fig tree. This is that last bun, right? So we've got the bun, we've got the meat, we've got the cheese on top, right? If you're into that. And then we have a final bun to complete this burger. It comes back to the fig tree, withered, from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And he says this simple statement, have faith in God. Like, I don't know what to tell you, man. Fig trees die all day. If I curse them, have faith in God, Peter. Now, if Jesus didn't make it fully clear until this point, he does now. He let the reality of this parable, this living parable with the fig tree, do the final, last lesson for him. Indeed, his creation speaks. If you read Psalm 19, it says that the stars pour out speech, but here the fig trees tell us a warning. He tells us that this curse has consequences, that this judgment has a final ending and a consequence because there was a fifth step in the process that I didn't bother to put up for you. If the fifth step in the process of the fig tree is that the fig tree withers and dies, the destruction of the fig tree, then the fifth part of the process for the temple is that he will tear it down and build it up again, which he does. He's going to enact a destruction of the temple. He didn't even say it in their midst. Like, hey, here's your warning. Passes a fig tree and the fig tree testifies for him. Now this interpretation that Jesus gives is crucial for understanding. Bringing the fig tree and this moment together is very unique to Mark, but it gives us a, a, a different layer of understanding to this. His teaching transforms just a simple protest into an announcement of divine judgment. Something is coming. So seeing it in the context of this helps us as the readers and those who had access to the book of Mark to understand that they have this advantage. Like there is an actual consequence if we don't obey or listen to what's being asked of us. The passage is cited even here from verse 56, 7, Isaiah, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, means that God did not plan for the temple to become a national shrine, which is what it had become, but instead a blessing for all who might think they should be included into God's salvation. Well, Isaiah mentions the foreigner who has joined himself to the people and the outcasts of Israel 56, 8. Most assume that Isaiah 56 spoke of some distant future, but Jesus expects the kingdom to be enacted here and now. Okay, so how do we apply this to our lives? Well, I mean, on a surface level, can we be angry? I think so. Can we be righteous in our anger? Look, if you tell me that, I'm not going to believe you. <laughs> right? You shouldn't believe me we're sinful people. It is possible, but we need to ask ourselves, go to God before and say, look, like, before you start flipping over tables and using that as an excuse to do whatever it is that you want for whatever reason, stop and ask Jesus, is this a righteous anger or do I just need to go visit a rage room, right? But if it is anger and it is righteous, Then it shows us that Jesus was willing to do some things that are maybe different than what we would do. It it tells us that he was willing to make some very difficult points to some specific people. And it says this, one commentary I thought was just beautiful. It said, we easily see the judgment of God against the people, right? Like you can catch the harshness of the fig tree, catch the harshness of the judgment towards the people of God. But this is what's true. In a few weeks, God's people will counterjudge the Son of God. And what they didn't realize is they thought they had the authority to do so, but in the midst of their judgment, they were being read by Jesus. So he had this final authority. We're not seeing this idea as just a sentence or a judgment or the destruction. What I want you to see is that he gives a warning before it and gives opportunity for us to change and come into alignment. So as they're judging the character of God, they don't realize that the standard for righteousness, the standard for truth, the standard for correct living, the standard for the treatment of others had just examined them and saw them unfit and unworthy. But before any of that takes place, Jesus gives us an opportunity to say it is coming. That judgment part is real. It's happening. I'm telling you it's happening because I want you to turn and believe now. Because had the money exchangers stopped and repented, this probably would have played out different. Had a fig tree produced fruit, that probably would have turned out a little different as well. Had the people of God examined their hearts before examining and excluding the hearts of the Gentiles, this probably would have turned out different. So when we read the Word of God, it's reading us, it's examining us, it's weighing us so that we understand wholeheartedly, I can't do this on my own. I need the blood of Jesus to cover me. So that submission turns into freedom where you get to go to God, and just as Caleb was telling us, stand in the mercy that God has given us. And so my hope for us As a church today, as we move towards Holy Week, as we move towards Palm Sunday next weekend, let us do so with an inwardly examined heart, not with fingers pointed. And say, God, is there things that need to be done in my life, personally, in our lives, as the church, God? Have we maybe done some things that have caused the nations not to want to come to you, God? And we can repent, and we get that tool, we get that opportunity, but we also get to go straight to Jesus with our heads held high, not because we are great or awesome, but because Jesus has made us clean and forgiven us and gave us the opportunity. So we're warned, but we are invited. We are cleansed by Jesus' blood because ultimately we are now the temple of Christ. So that old system is gone, that old way of operating is gone, it was just an image to let us know that we are now going to be a people of roaming temples. You and I, the temple of the Holy Spirit, here and now, and everywhere we go, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we have been cleansed by the blood, but we are still called to be on mission to see that all nations are blessed through the blessing that we have been given. Are you willing to be a renewed temple today? There's freedom and there's power and there's authority in that. But it only comes through the grace if we accept it beforehand. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we go barreling towards Easter, if we're reading our scriptures, we see the intensity, we see uh, the way that this begins to um, move towards its climax in the death, burial, and resurrection. We see the trigger pull of God in this moment. We see that inside of this, he is saying, look, we're not just pointing fingers at people. We're going to examine our hearts, Lord. And now that we stand as living temples of the Holy Spirit, God, would you just allow us to do the work necessary to examine our hearts before we enter in because on the other side, we want to feel that freedom. We want to know that that grace has washed us clean. We want to step out of the darkness and into the light. So may the people of God not be acting as if we didn't know better. May we fight for love as intensely, as passionately, as uncivilly as Jesus fought for it. may you guide us by your Holy Spirit to know when we are righteous and when we are not. And so our hearts are laid bare before you, God. May we step into the freedom and the power and the authority and the grace that Caleb sang over us earlier today. Yes, Lord, we ask for this right now in Jesus' name. All God's people sit. amen.